morning, everyone. It's good to see you out this morning. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3. you wouldn't mind standing for the reading of God's word. We're going to just read, pick up the verse 19 here. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Let us pray and ask his blessing upon this time. Please bow with me. Heavenly Father, in the moments ahead, please turn our hearts toward you, that we may gaze upon your beauty as it is reflected to us through your word. And please allow your glorious character to shine upon us and transform the shortcomings of our characters so that we might act more accurately, resemble Jesus Christ to the world around us in the daily lives that we live. We acknowledge that we need the aid of your Holy Spirit to do this. And so we ask for your glory and for our good that you would kindly have mercy upon us and meet these requests. We ask this in the powerful and awesome name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So from my point of view, uh, it was a tragic story. Uh, we attended seminary together, and we also had an opportunity to work alongside each other in the same place. Uh, he was an intelligent young man and an extremely gifted communicator. Not to mention he had a warm personality, one of those kind that was just magnetic. Uh, when he was around, you just wanted to be around him. He was a, a fun type of guy. Uh, as a matter of fact, many of us who were attending seminary and worked with him uh, pretty much felt like that after seminary, he would probably become a very well-known and renowned uh, communicator of God's word because he was just that gifted. But what we did not know was that he had some deep character flaws that had gone unaddressed in his life. And it was uh, as a result of those character flaws that he made some decisions over a period of time that ultimately came to the light that caused uh, a number of people pain in their lives, which ultimately uh, made those who were in the decision-making uh, places uh, have to deal with the decisions that he had made. And as a result of those things coming to light, uh, he ended up uh, losing his place of employment, and in addition, he was uh, revoked from being able to attend the seminary. Uh, it was a tragic story, a sad story because he was judged as one who had become unfaithful to God. Now, I'm sure that many of you are aware of, just like I am aware of, that it is very possible to live a life that is unfaithful to God. You probably can recall from your mind, as soon as I said that, there are probably uh, stories from the Bible that come to mind about specific people who took specific actions that led them to, be, uh, to live a life that was unfaithful. But I would guess if I were to, to take a poll of the room today, that not one of us here who's a true believer in Jesus Christ has a desire to be unfaithful to God. 
I think we have a different desire. I would say that if I could search your heart, probably there's a desire to hear uh, what, what Jesus talked about at the parable at the end of Matthew 25 when he talked about the parable of the master coming back to deal with the servants. And you probably want to hear what he said to the faithful servants, which let me just remind you was this. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Probably all of us, there is a desire in our hearts to hear those words from Jesus at his return and at the end of life. When we stand before him as our judge, that we want to hear those words spoken from him to us. So the question is, how do we live a life that ultimately ends up being declared by Jesus as faithful on the day of its return? Well, I want to show you today the path to faithfulness by using Samuel's life as an example of that and of those who are around him as well. So let me state up front what the path to faithfulness is, and then we'll talk about that. It is obedience to God is what leads to a faithful life. Obedience to God is what leads to a faithful life. And there are two main ways in the text that we'll see this work out. Now, there are a lot of things from the text I wanted to show you, but I'm going to just restrict myself to these two things. But before we get into the two things that uh, are ways that obedience works itself out, let me give you a little bit of context about Samuel's life that you saw from the video and a little bit of an overview of his life in general. So over the last two weeks, if you've been attending church or watching online or have caught the sermons at point, some point, you will know that the last two weeks we've been spending it in the period of history called the Judges. And if you remember, the Judges was a period in Israel's history where there was moral chaos and it was rampant with unfaithfulness to God. That was just kind of the character of the day. And as Pastor James so eloquently pointed out last week, that led to a cycle between God and the people. And that cycle involved where they would rebel or become unfaithful, which would ultimately lead to oppression by foreign powers, which then would lead to them crying out after years of oppression. And they would ask God for aid, and God would respond by sending a judge. Now, the judge here is not like the type we would think about sitting in a courtroom, wearing a black robe uh, with a gavel. Uh, That's not the kind of judge that we have in mind. These judges were more like warlords. They were raised up, who raised up armies that sought to free the people from the oppression of whatever foreign power was uh, causing them pain or distress at this point. And there were a few who were scattered throughout the period of the judges that did do some more judicial things where they heard and resolved disputes. One of those would be someone like Deborah. She judged. She resolved disputes. Now, when we get to Samuel, we find out that he is born at the end of the period of the judges. As a matter of fact, he's going to become the very last judge. But he's special and different in some other ways. Not only does he become a judge, but he's also born into the line of priests. So he serves as a priest. And in addition to that, he has the rare opportunity that has not happened since Moses. God calls him and he becomes a prophet like Moses. And so he has a very unique role. And we find out as we look at his life that he did do the job of a warlord and free the uh, Israelites from the hand of the Philistines. He served uh, hearing disputes, and that was probably what he spent most of his time did, as he uh, most of his time doing, as he traveled around this four-city circuit, hearing disputes among people and resolving those disputes. Uh, We also find out that he had this great role, if we look at his resume, of of helping to transition the governmental structure of Israel from this loose confederation of tribes to this united kingdom 
under David. Uh, and all the while, in the midst of that period, he served, when the power structure changed, he served as an advisor uh, to the king, the first king of Israel, Saul. He, he's a unique guy in history, and specifically in the history of Israel. But out of all of his resume, as I looked across the scripture and read through 1 Samuel, what stands out most to me about Saul uh, is the contrast that we see about Samuel, excuse me, about Samuel, in contrast to the others like Eli, uh, Eli's sons, uh, Samuel's own sons, the elders of the people, and of course, King Saul. And that is this, that Samuel, amongst all the other lives that we see playing out and the lives that are being lived in the book of 1 Samuel, he's the only one who consistently lives a faithful life to God from his childhood until the point that he dies. And that's what makes him so special, and that's why I wanted to, to look at his life. So uh, let me get to the, the two things that I want to share with you. The first thing that I want to share with you is this. The first way we see obedience to God work out its way in, in the text is that the people, specifically Samuel, trust the Lord. And that's the first thing I want to bring out, that if we're going to be obedient to the Lord, then we need to trust the Lord. Let me take you to the text, and I'll walk you through how I get that. Let's start off with chapter 4, at the beginning of chapter 4, and we find this written there. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. Uh, they encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought up from, from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. A couple of observations from the text that I want to make you aware of that you'll see there. We first of all see that Israel is at a time of war with the foreign oppressor of the Philistines. Uh, and Israel, in this initial battle, of course, loses the battle. And as a result of that, their leaders who are referred to in this text as the elders of the people decide to play what they believe will be their trump card in the battle. They're going to bring out the Ark of the Covenant. This is the symbol of God's presence. If you remember from Exodus, uh, in that period of time, this was the box that God instituted to be made that was made of wood but fully overlaid with gold. And on top of it, it had the cherubim and God's presence would show up over the cherubim in some form of light. Uh, if we were to think of it that way. And so this represented God's presence among his people. And so they think, hey, listen, if we bring out the symbol of God's presence to the battlefield, as in times past, God will deliver us from the hand of the Philistines. This will ensure a victory for us. But we find that it doesn't work out that way. Uh, they end up losing the battle and losing the ark because there's something that's missing in the text that would have happened in previous periods of history. And what it is that's missing from the text is the people don't actually seek God. They just simply treat him like he's a magic amulet. So you bring him out, we rub the box, and we get what we want. And that's how they treat God's presence. But God refuses to be treated that way. And so ultimately, they suffer defeat. And the symbol of God's presence is taken into the hands of the enemy. 
Now let's contrast this with what happens uh, some 20 years later when Samuel is leading the people. And here's the first the item I'll bring out there. So let's go to chapter 7. We'll start at verse 2. From the day the ark was lodged at kiriath Jerem, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you're returning to the Lord with all of your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they, started, they, they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all the people of, Is, people of Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord uh, for Israel, and the Lord answered them. A few more observations for us to take note of as we compare these two texts. Again, uh, Israel has been, uh, as the cycle has been going on through this entire period, they've grown weary of the oppression that they've suffered at the hands of the Philistines for the some t past 20 to 21 years after that last battle and the loss of the Ark of the, of the Covenant. Now, what we see from the text is that the issue that they're facing and the oppression that they're facing is mainly not a political issue, but a spiritual one. Notice uh, in verse 3 how Samuel states that it is a result of a heart condition. The reason that they have suffered oppression is because of their relationship with God, or rather, shall I say, their lack of relationship with God because of where their heart was toward God, and that's why they behaved the way they did. Now, we're giving additional information about what's been going on over the last 20 years that we did not know back earlier uh, in chapter 4, which is that the people are relying on other gods, that there has been idolatrous worship in the land of Israel during this entire period. While they were trotting out the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, they had also been worshiping other gods at that same time, and that's what caused them to ultimately treat the Lord the way they did. Their heart was divided. Their faith was in other gods. And because their trust rested in other gods and not just the, the God of Israel, they treated God's presence like a magic amulet. But what, what Samuel says to them is that what the people need to do is repent. And he gives specific examples of how their repentance needs to happen. He says to them that they need to turn away from their idolatrous worship uh, and put their trust solely in the God of Israel and in him alone. There can be no compromise. There can be no divided heart. There can be no place of allegiance other than the God of Israel. And so the people ultimately do that. They renounce and repent of their sin. They put away uh, these other gods and idolatrous worship and these things that they had had in their homes or places that they had set up. And, and they turn now solely to the God of Israel because they want him to rescue them. We see evidence of this turning through the prayer and the sacrifices that they make. And the result of this change of heart is a, is a change in their living conditions. God does see their change of heart and does answer Samuel's prayer. And ultimately, he ends up delivering them 
from the Philistine oppression. Now, why is this the case? Why is it that Samuel is able to lead them in the right direction as to the people not being able to see this from themselves? And, and I, I would argue the point is the reason is because Samuel has been obeying the commands of Moses because he has a relationship of trust with the God of Israel. And because he's in a right relationship with the God of Israel, he knows what is necessary to lead the people to a right relationship. We see that relationship with uh, God formed at the beginning of chapter 3. And what we, we find out that's evident from Samuel's relationship versus the people's relationship with God is this. If we do not trust God, inevitably, we will not obey him. We see the same connection in the Lord Jesus' life. Peter reflects on this when he talks about how Jesus uh, was able to be obedient in a period where he had to endure immense suffering. Peter said this in reflecting on what he witnessed in Jesus' life. He said this, uh, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him, to him being God, who judges justly. Likewise, we must put our full trust in the Lord alone if we're to walk the path of obedience that ultimately leads to us being declared as ones who've had a faithful life. Now, often when we look at the Lord Jesus in his life, the way he demonstrated his trust in God was through the means of prayer. Let me recall a few examples for you. Remember when he was going to choose the 12 apostles? What did he spend the night doing before? He prayed. Before he raised Lazarus from the dead, what did he do? He prayed. And before he went to the cross to die for our sins, what did he do? He prayed. And likewise, because this was the pattern in his own life, then those who would be his followers, he encouraged us to do the same thing. Matthew 6, Matthew 11. In these passages, the Lord teaches us what we often refer to as the Lord's Prayer. It's really not the Lord's Prayer. It's the disciples' prayer. But we refer to it that. But this is his pattern of teaching about how we ought to pray. And in that text, he tells us one of the things he says that we ought to request of God is to lead us not into temptation. Uh, New Testament scholar Murray Harrison, talking about difficult texts, explains what this specific excuse me, uh, petition means. He says this, We conclude that the sixth petition in the Lord's Prayer is a request for the avoidance of severe testing that will result in the failing of faith and dishonor of God. What he's saying here is that what, we're, what we do when we pray that prayer is we're asking for heavenly help so that we might stay on the path of obedience and not have a break with faith so that we ultimately may be able to live a faithful life. We're requesting, Lord, help me to not be put in situations that I would be so pressed by the situation that I might abandon faith in you and then ultimately turn to sin as a result and become unfaithful. Deliver me from those type of situations. Help me to bear up under them so that I'm able to stay on the path of faithfulness. The writer of Hebrews encourages a similar thing to believers who are in a similar situation who are considering abandoning their faith in Jesus Christ. And he says to them, he says, based on the fact of the role that, that the resurrected Christ now sits at God's right hand and serves as our heavenly high priest, because of his role in God's economy, you can come to the throne of grace. Notice how he writes this. He says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in the time of need. What time of need? A time when my faith 
may fail and I might sin against God. In those moments, what I need to do is not run from God, but run to God and ask him for divine aid so that I might continue to be obedient to him. And it's this reason why Jesus says in Luke 18 that he encourages us to be persistent in prayer. When Robert Louis Stevenson, the Scottish novelist, poet, and travel writer, probably most noted for his works, you might know him, Treasure Island and the Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, was a boy. The story is told that when he got in trouble with his mom, he told his mom, he said, Mom, you know what? You cannot be good without praying. And she said, Son, how do you know that? And he replied to her, Because I've tried. A similar story was told by, about another little boy who got into trouble and uh, he had been sent to his room for a timeout to think over the things he had done. And he, after his timeout, he came out and he told his mother, I, I took time to reflect on uh, what it is that I have done. And I decided to say a prayer about that. And his mother, of course, thought that was a great idea. And she said, son, that is wonderful. I am so glad that you thought about what you had done wrong and you took time to pray about it. It is so wonderful to know that you ask God to help you. If you ask God to help you to travel the right path and to be good and to behave rightly, God is willing to help you. And he said, oh, mama, I didn't ask God to help me. No, what I did was I asked God to help you put up with me. Now, I don't think that's the kind of prayer that we're, we're looking for here. It, it, the ultimate focus should be on, Lord, help change me so that I might continue on the path of obedience. And I think that this, this, this specific idea speaks to the current cultural situation that we're facing today. Often what I see in the news feeds about what's going on in the culture around us is all the violence and uh, um, uh, distrust and, and various things spouted about. But in all the talking about the various solutions that need to be addressed, what I see so woefully missing is that no one seems to be saying we need to seek God. He seems to be obviously absent from all the discussions that are happening. There's no emphasis on, hey, maybe there's something spiritual going on, not just political, social. There may be something bigger going on here than what we see with our eyes. And I believe that we saw a demonstration of the right approach here back in June when our church participated uh, in the, the prayer vigil at the state capitol to call upon God, to ask God to get involved in our nation, to help bring about the change that is truly needed, and as well to bring peace among the people. I believe that is the pattern that believers all across this nation should be doing. That, that what we need to be saying is, God, what is it that you're doing in our nation? We know that you run and are sovereign over the entire world, and we understand that you have a sovereign plan that you're working out in our world and in our nation. In some kind of way, whatever's going on, either you sent it or you've allowed it, and we're not sure why you've done this, and we not, may not be clear about it, but we want to turn to you and ask you to get involved because our hearts are turned towards you instead of turned towards us just simply seeking a political solution. We, re we recognize that the kingdom of heaven rules over the kingdom of men. And so we, we, we beseech you from the throne of heaven to make judicial decisions about what needs to be changed, and we ask you to bring peace in our nation. I, I believe that's the true path that the people of God need to seek, just like the people of Israel realized it when they were facing a time of distress. We need God's Help. That brings me to the second point that I see in the text, and that's this. The second way that we seek to obey God or we see obedience worked out to God uh, in the way we treat people by treating them 
rightly. I'm going to show this to you by showing you a contrast between Samuel and his own sons in the text. Let's go to chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all of the elders of Israel gathered and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. So we see here the character of Samuel's sons, very reminiscent of, of the character of Eli's own sons who were men who were wicked. Uh, and they have fallen to the same temptation that Eli's sons had fallen to. Greed has caused them to disobey God. And so they take their positions of power and influence in society, and because of their own greed, they manipulate and they take advantage of others and, and finally pervert justice. One commentator said this. He said their actions were clearly in violation of the Torah, that what that law given, the teaching given by Moses. We see that in Exodus 23.8, Leviticus 19.15, and Deuteronomy 16.19. And their actions were certain to bring conflict in society because they were playing partiality. But when we look at Samuel's life in comparison to his sons, we find out that he has a very different way that he lived his life. It's already been alluded to, but let me give you the specific, specific examples from the text that show how he lived his life differently. For that, we have to go to chapter 12. And this is what the text says. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And behold, and now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or, who, or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or have taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness against you this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. As a judge of Israel who occupied a unique position of power and influence in society, we find that in Samuel's entirety of his life, in discharging his duty as a person who was to oversee what happened in the lives of others, never abused his power or authority. He never took advantage of others. He treated people fairly by judging them according to the law that had been given uh, by Moses from God. We see the same thing in the Lord Jesus' life, life when he alludes to the fact that he has never been able to be convicted of sin. He said this, which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why don't, don't you believe me? He, he sinned in, in no way. He never took advantage of relationships. We see the same thing about Jesus in the, in the book of Hebrews when the writer said this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Now notice, though, there's a difference yet without sin. Jesus never violated neither the commands that point toward God or any command that points towards God's 
demonstration of how he wanted people to act in relationships toward those who are his image bearers. Jesus violated neither one of those sets of commands, but always did what was right toward God and toward other people. And likewise, as image bearers of God, we're to do that exactly what we see in Jesus' life and in Samuel's life. We are to treat other people rightly. Now, in light of the fact that we've transitioned from the old covenant to the new covenant, Paul sums up what is it that we're to do, what is our responsibility as those who are under the new covenant that has been established by Christ, what is our, uh, what, what is our debt to those who are other human beings. And so he sums it up in Romans this way. He says, Oh, don't want anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, and therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So Paul sums it up and he says that when we treat other people rightly, that is, we operate by the higher law of love, then in that way we will obey God's commands. Simply recall to mind all the scriptures that speak about the right treatment of other people. And all those right treatments are ultimately demonstrations of love. It's not the kind of behavior that we perhaps have seen on YouTube of the so-called Karens or the Albany Three College students who perpetrated a racial hoax, or the mob in Brooklyn who brutally beat a 15-year-old girl. And I was uh, sadly made aware of something that's going on in schools here that's, that's kind of a popular uh, thing that's happening uh, in middle schools uh, that Mike Bongo was sharing about me, but about this new game that's called the Skull Crusher game where two friends stand on the side of their supposed friend in the middle and ask them to jump, and then they kick their legs out, hoping that the child will fall and smash their head against the crown, uh, ultimately which could lead to brain damage or physical breaks, and that is supposed to be fun. No, no, that's not an act of love, and if any child here, you have anyone who treats you like that, they're not your friend. They don't care about you at all. That, that, that's not the kind of way that humans ought to treat each other. But, but, but what I would offer to you is two other stories that I think demonstrate what God is pointing towards when he tells us that we ought to operate in love one towards another. The first I'll tell you about is a, a gentleman by the name of Ray Robokowski and another gentleman by the name of Jacob Macklin. Ray was a police officer who served on the force and Jacob had been a drug lord. Uh, and, and, and over time, and of course, if you had looked at Jacob's life, uh, you could watch him actually grow old by looking at his mug shots over a period of time. You watched him grow from a young man to an old man. He had been in a life of crime and had a, a number of incidences where he had been in and out of prison over his life. And on this particular occasion, uh, the chief of police had, had decided to set up a meeting so that they could sit down and talk because they said, there's got to be another way to resolve some things. Now, of course, Ray's initial attitude was, as a police officer, was this guy's not going to change, and I'm not, I'm not going to worry about it uh, because he's going to be out there, and I'm going to catch him just like I have done in the past. And that was his initial feeling and thought about it. Uh, Jacob, of course, had to be tricked to the meeting because he would have never gone had he known Ray was there. But they finally ended up there, and in their first meeting, they just kind of stared at each other. But what ended up happening out of that meeting is that they kept meeting, and over time, Ray decided to change his approach and decided to help Jacob out. And he said, man, uh, if you're really looking for change, I'll help you to get, to get a change in your life. And so what he ended up doing as a police officer was setting up 14 to 15 job interviews for Jacob. 
And Jacob ultimately ended up getting a job, and as a result of that job, ended up changing his life. Never went back to prison. Ultimately ended up marrying and raising a family. And his whole life changed. And in the place, his life so changed that he rose into the position of management. So that when Ray retired from the police force and wanted to continue to do some work, he went to Jacob. And Jacob hired him, and now he works for Jacob. An interesting story that they have become friends. Why? Because someone cared about someone else. And love has a way of changing our relationships. I'll share with you another story of a similar way, Sim similar kinds of things in this one. This one has to do with a probation officer who is black. Her name is Tiffany Whittier and Michael Kent, who is white, who happened to be at, at, in his former life a neo-Nazi. And it confessed that he had no kind thoughts about people of color in any way and never wanted to be around a person of color, never wanted to, to be uh, involved with in any way uh, a person of color. His prison tattoos showed that uh, he had committed his life to this ideology and this was the way that he was going to, to live his life. And ultimately, his case got assigned to Tiffany, who was a black woman, uh, as, as a probation officer. Of course, he thought this was going to turn out to be a, an entirely negative experience for him as he already had hate in his heart. But Tiffany decided because her approach to things was, as a probation officer, I have been put to be a positive influence in people's life and to help make a difference in their life. And so she cared about Michael and began to, to show care for him and began to, to guide him in the right path. One of the things she said to him was when she went in and saw the different uh, symbols of hate in his house, she said, you know what, you're never going to be able to, to make it in life with only looking at hate. Why don't you take some of that stuff down and put up some things that give you a positive view on life. And so ultimately, through time, they became friends. His view about people of color changed. His heart changed. He began to, uh, they began to form a friendship, and he said he felt so much so, so close to her because of the change that had happened in his life. He now viewed her as family. And so much so that he ended up taking a job where now everybody around him is a person of color. And he said he never would have been this way had it not been for her influence of loving and care about him in his life. And the change, he was, his heart was so changed and so moved that he felt so bad about the former life that he lived and that tattoos that were on his body, he went to a tattoo parlor, a professional one, to have the marks of his old life and old ideology removed and covered up. A sign of a, a changed heart. Why did that happen in both of these people's places? Two people who, who should not have gotten together because two people decided to care about others. Now, why do I tell you this and why do I mention these racial categories? It's to tell you that ultimately what this the real problem is, is an issue not of skin, but of the heart. And if a person has the right heart and is willing to follow God's commands, specifically the law of love, then a per, another person who you think cannot change is able to be changed and that relationship is able to be mended. So if you, like me, desire to be found faithful, like the Lord Jesus Christ, and I want to encourage you to follow the path of obedience. Put your trust in the Lord and in him alone and treat other people rightly. I believe as I close here that the clearest example of where these two uh, demonstrations of obedience come together in one place is none other than the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ reminds us about what obedience and trust looks like for uh, those of us who submit ourselves to the will of God. Paul alludes to as much when he writes to the Philippians when he says this, and being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, death, even to death on the cross. On the cross, when Jesus went to the cross, it was out of sheer obedience to his father that he decided to go to the cross for his father's 
own glory and for his father's name in obedience to him. But not only was it an act of obedience, it was an act of great love, the greatest act of love of one human towards another human. Jesus said as much in John's gospel when he said this, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his, for his friends. For if you are my friends, you will do what I command you. On the cross, not only was it a display of ultimate obedience to the Father and trust in the Father's will, but also it is the greatest display of love of one human being toward another. That Jesus, who was worthy of glory and honor, would lay down his life for those of us who are unrighteous. And that would be all the rest of humanity that he would take our place on the cross. That is the reality. And that's why I believe the writer of Hebrews said this about Jesus. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. Brothers and sisters, if on the day of Christ, you want Jesus to look at you and to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant then follow his example and you'll find yourself in that same place.